All right, good evening, everybody. How are you tonight? <clears throat> oh, sounds good, right? That's excellent. <laughs> well, we're going to begin our series in the book of Numbers, and as we have been doing, this has been our practice, we do an overview of the book. So tonight I'm going to do an overview of the book of Numbers. The title is Numbers and Introduction, and ask that you would stand with me, we would pray, we'll read from God's Word. And we'll see what God says to us tonight. Lord, we thank you that indeed you have no equals, you have no rivals. Yours is the greatness and the power, for you have overcome the grave. We thank you, Lord God, for your holy word, which helps us, Lord God, helps us to win the battle against the schemes of the devil. We ask, Lord God, that as we look at your word tonight, the book of Numbers, we ask, Lord God, that we would be encouraged and we would strengthen. We ask that we would see Jesus in the book of Numbers, that we wouldn't just learn history, but we would learn about a God who loves us with an everlasting love and has promised that he would carry us through to the very end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read one verse tonight. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of the meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So where the Lord, you may be seated. The book of Numbers. The author is, who would you say the author is? Trick question. Right, right? we say it's Moses. Probably could not, could be, could not be Moses. We really don't know. Uh, uh, Historically, it's been attributed to, to Moses, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll go with that because why not? Because it says at the, at the end of the verse, at the end of the book, it says in Numbers 33, 2, it says, Moses wrote down the starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. It's better to say that Moses was the vessel through which Numbers was written, the Holy Spirit, as we know, leads men to write the Word of God. As Peter says in his epistle in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or as Timothy tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know that numbers is profitable for correct, for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? Normally numbers would not be top of the list of those things. We would think of Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and the teachings of Jesus. We probably wouldn't normally think of the book of Numbers as having that kind of value, even though it is the Word of God, and it is the Word of God, and it does help us to engage in spiritual warfare, as Paul says in Ephesians 6.17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Numbers is the inspired, infallible Word of God. When was it written? Again, this is an overview. Probably between 1440 and 1400 B.C. before Christ. Or if you're going to be very technical, before the common error. In our Bible, the name of the book is Numbers. But that's actually not the real title. 
It, the title of Numbers came about because of the listing of the children of Israel. There's two censuses. They came, that's how it came to have its number. But the actual title is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. The wilderness is the word midbar, and you know what it means? It means wilderness. But the wilderness is not what we think it is. You know, we see the movies and, uh, of the children of Israel, and, and it's always a desert. They weren't always in a desert. They moved in the 40 years. They moved from desert. They moved to uh, the mountainous areas. They moved to places where there was palm trees. It was lush. They, it's it's, a, it's a, 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 an array of different terrains that make up wilderness. But what is the purpose of the book of Numbers? Why did God have numbers in the Bible? If it's just a bunch of lists of names and stuff, well, it's actually far more than that. I like what uh, Gordon Ketty writes in his commentary. Uh, he writes this, Numbers calls the church to repentance for her sins against God and man, to, to obedience to the unvarnished law of God, and to trust in the gracious promises of God. That's a purpose of the book of Numbers, to call the church to repentance for her sins against man and against God, to obedience to God's unvarnished law, and to trust in the gracious promises of God. If you were to give a breakdown of Genesis, of, Genesis, of Numbers, if you were to say, here's an outline, the most simple outline you can give of the book of Numbers is a generation of unbelief and rebellion in chapters 1 to 25, and then you can have a generation of faith and obedience from chapters 26 to 36. The outline that I use comes from the Whalen Commentary uh, series, and we're just going to kind of go through it a little bit to give us an idea of the book of Numbers. We probably know far more about Numbers and heard stories in Numbers than we actually realize. Uh, the first part, if you were to break it down according to the Wayland Commentary series, says the first part is preparations for the journey. Preparations for the journey. And they say stand up and be counted as uh, the first part. You can go to the next slide. It's going to have all the lists. You can just park it there for a little bit. Stand up and be counted. So from 1-1 to, 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 uh, to verse 54, we have a counting, a census. And what happens there is they are numbered from the age of 20 and up to those who can go to war, right? Think about it. It makes sense. God says, you're about to go in, take the promised land. We're going to go in and you're going to conquer people. You're going to have to fight. You're going to do something here. You're going to have warfare. Make sure you're ready for war. So he counts everybody from 20 and up who are able to go to war. He also has the people in chapter 2 uh, to set them out in by their camps and by their, by their clans. So you have, you have the 12 tribes, and they're set out around the, ta the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle is the center of the life of the children of Israel. So they are set up around it. Uh, the, what is interesting is that Judah is set up on the east side. Why is that? Well, that's a picture of Jesus that says he's going to come and he's going to enter in through the east. That kind of stuff amazes me. I like that kind of stuff. We see the, in chapter 3 to all the way through 4 the duties of the Levites. They're not in the census, by the way. 
Their purpose was to be the servants of God, and, all, and they tell us the duties by their clans of what they're to do. You're to do this, you take care of this in the temple, you set this up, you take this down, you do this. All their instructions are given here in the book of Numbers. You know the story of David bringing the ark back on a cart and Uzzah, right, with all good intentions. Like, who wouldn't do what Uzzah did, right? The, the ark stumbles, uh, the oxen stumble, the cart stumbles, and it looks like God's ark is going to fall off into the mud. <laughs> and I like what R.C. Sproul says. They assumed that the, that, the mud was, that, that the mud was dirtier than their sinful hands. Right? And so Uzzah reaches out and he touches the ark and he steadies the ark and God instantly incinerates him on the spot. Why? Well, you actually learn why in the book of Numbers. It tells us here in Numbers 4.15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, so in other words, they packed everything up and everything was covered over. You couldn't see anything, it had to be covered over. After the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. God already said, you touch it. If you're from the tribe of Kohath, you are the one who to take down and cover the, thing, the, 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 the the stuff of the sanctuary. You're not to touch it. If the Kohathites were to touch it and die, how much more somebody who wasn't? So they were already given the command, don't touch Uzzah should have known that. David should have known this. You have also them outside the camp. There's again, again laws for unclean people. We dealt with that extensively in the book of Leviticus. You can go back and check that out. And also in chapter 4, there's the idea of restitution. And then you have this test for adultery. You have a test where a husband says, you know what, I, I think my wife cheated on me. It says, if the spirit of jealousy enters the husband, like, you'd have to have some good reason. But if he just thinks that my wife cheated on me, they have this elaborate ceremony where they go into the, they, 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 they go to the priest and he undoes her hair and she sits before the Lord. He has grain in her hand. And, and the priest is to take the dust from the floor of the sanctuary, mix it with water. She's to drink it. And if it's true that she's... Uh, been adulterous, her belly's going to swell, and, you know, it's going to be bad for her. If it's not, it's just weird. But we have something like that. What is the purpose in that? Well, I don't know whoever's going to preach it. They'll let you know when we get there. Um, I'm looking at you, John Oach. <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> you have consecrations and blessings in chapter 6. The Nazarite vow, where... You know, Paul took a Nazarite vow for a while where they would shave their head and they would re refuse to drink any alcohol. We also have the very famous Aaronic blessing. Did you know that the Aaronic blessing was in the book of Numbers? You know what the Aaronic blessing is? You'll know it if you hear it, right? Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Whenever I hear that, I always think of Braveheart. Remember the story in Braveheart where uh, his girlfriend was killed by the English and he comes to the father and he just trembles and he puts his hand and he gives him the ironic blessing. That scene is just always in my head. That's where the ironic blessing comes from. In seven, you have uh, 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 gifts for the altar. You have the living lamps. You have them being guided by God. 
the, 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 the cloud guiding them. They set out from Sinai. You've got to remember, they were at Sinai. God gave the law. God gave the instructions of how they live, of how they would build the tabernacle and all that. And now when all of that is done, and that was a significant amount of time, by the way, um, they depart for the promised land. And already they run into problems. In chapter 10 through 12, we see that the people begin to complain, right? They already had a history of complaining. But now they complain and they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, that we were back in Egypt because we had meat in our pots and we had cucumbers and we had leeks. Like, who would want to go and eat leeks anyways? If you like leeks, I'm sorry for you. Um, <clears throat> meat, I can understand. But they complain. And how does God respond? God sends fire down and begins to consume them. And, of course, Moses steps in. But we also have that Moses complains to God. It's the first time that Moses complains to God, at least that I know of, where he says, oh, God, I, why did you do this to me, God? Why did you bring me and give me all these people? This is too much for me to bear. And how does God respond to Moses? He doesn't send fire. He gives Moses help. Moses gets help when he complains. It's also within this that Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. You know the story. But they begin to think, hey, you know, God didn't just speak to you. You know, we're big players in the game too. And it was really, I mean, it was really culturally uh, unacceptable for Miriam to raise herself up and say, hey, and God gave her what? Leprosy, right? Uh, it, it was a rough time for the children of Israel. So after all that, they get out and they set out for the promised land. And in Numbers, we have the story of the spies. The spies go in, they check out the promised land. Moses sent out 12 spies, one from each tribe. They go out and they spy out the land. And we know the story. They come back and they say, oh man, there's just no way. We can't do this. This is impossible. Not going to happen because we are like grasshoppers in their sight. You know, the, the, the Anakin lived there. The, the, these huge giants lived there. There's no way we can do this. And of course, Joshua and Caleb say, no, they were like bread before us. We can go. Nothing's going to stop us. This is God's doing. And of course, the, the negative voices prevail in the people. And then he, God, again, is angry. God says, you're not going to enter the promised land now because this generation is going to die in the desert. And so for a period of 40 years, the generation that did not listen to God died. Throughout this, God reminds them of His goodness. Then there's more trouble. We have a showdown in the desert, as it says. I think, the, sorry, you should have advanced it to uh, part three. Or part, part, part. Let's see whose staff buds. God's going to declare who was his whose. And Korah was found to be in rebellion against God. And what happened? The earth opened up, right? Can you imagine seeing this, right? The earth opened up, swallowed him and his family and all those who were in rebellion with him. And the earth closed back up and it was done and it was over with. And God's man, Moses, stood. We see that God... was wrathful, but yet merciful. Read it for yourself. We see that God was a gift of grace to the children of Israel. There's the water of cleansing. 
You go to part uh, six now. They go from Kadesh to the edge of the Jordan. Now they're up towards the Promised Land on the other side of the Jordan. There's a turning point. They run out of water. They want water. There's bitter water. Moses is upset and he's angry with the people because they're complaining um, and he gets angry. God says, listen, go out there and speak to the rock. We know the story of Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses goes out and he does not speak to the rock. He, he chides the children of Israel and it says that he and Aaron struck the rock. God said, speak. They struck And God said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not treat me as holy in front of the people, you will not enter the promised land. And so we see that they did not enter the promised land. It was also during this time that they had the battles against King Sion and King Og. Very important guys, by the way. If you read the Psalms, over and over they say how God led them through the desert and how they defeated King Sion and King Og. Remember, we talked about King Sion a while ago in one of the Psalms that mentioned that this guy would have been 13 feet tall, 6 feet wide. He was a monster of a man. He was huge. He slept on an iron bed. And they defeated these kings with the power of God. We also see in the book of Numbers that Balaam, comes into play. We know who Balaam is. He was called by the kings uh, of the land, King Balak, to come and to curse the people. And, of course, it doesn't work. Matter of fact, Balaam actually gives a prophecy about the coming of the Christ. It was was Balaam who says that God is not a man that he should lie and change his mind. It was also Balaam, though, though his cursing did not work, because he couldn't. He even said, I can only speak what God says. But it was also Balaam who told him, you want to cause these people to stumble? You can cause them to stumble sexually. And they began to intermarry with the people around them, and it became a curse to them. And we have the story of Phineas, who grabs his spear, the priest Phineas, who grabs his spear, and he goes into the tent, and he spears an Israeli, a children, child of God, with a, with a Canaanite woman, and he spears them both through, and God's anger stops. We see as they're getting ready to come into the promised land that a new day is coming, it says... There's a new census. There's now a faithful generation. And we have this great story about uh, Zelephahad. Anybody know who the daughters of Zelephahad are? So this one guy had only daughters. He didn't have any sons. And so the inheritance back then couldn't go to the daughters, but it went to the sons. And so these seven daughters came to Joshua and said, or Moses and said, hey, listen, this is not fair. This isn't right. It's not, God's essentially the one who didn't let my dad have any, any sons. What about us? And God gave the daughters an inheritance, an amazing story of faith and belief in the promises of God. Whoever does it will expound on it further, I hope. We also see that Joshua is to succeed Moses. They give the, uh, the uh, again, how to worship God, knowing that your sin will find you out, and preparation for victory. This is all from the Whalen Commentary. And you might be saying, well, then why preach through numbers? I like what 
uh, Dennis Cole says in his commentary, preaching from this text is regulated to the Balaam stories and oracles, the rebellious spy account, and the occasional reference to the Nazarite material to support a sermon on alcoholism. I also like what Ian Duggan said, Dugid, I think is his name, says in his commentary series about the book of Numbers. This is a different kind of story from the ones from which we're familiar. It is a story that doesn't really have a beginning. Grammatically, it starts in mid-sentence, as it were, with a Hebrew narrative form that usually looks back at the preceding verb. So what he's saying is when you look at the Hebrew of, of, of Numbers, the beginning word, it's like, wait, this, this is like a mid-sentence start. So some say it actually shouldn't be a separate book. It should be a continuation of Leviticus. But we have it as the book of Numbers. That's because the book of Numbers wants you to know that it never existed as an independent narrative. It is itself a continuation of the story of God's dealing with His people already begun in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. So it's a continuation of God's promise. What is Numbers about? If we were to say, what is Numbers about? I would tell you this. It is a story about Jesus. It is a story about Jesus. Remember, Jesus told the people on the road to Emmaus, he says that this, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Moses, beginning with Moses. And I think this is part of what Moses taught, what Moses wrote. Again, it says a little later on in Luke 24, then he said to them, these are the words that he said to the apostles when he's with them. And he up, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We say it's a book about Jesus, but I have to ask, do we look for Jesus when we come to a text? So you need to, in order to see Jesus in a text, we need to step back from the book of, of Numbers. We need to not just look at the individual stories, but take step back and look at the whole unfolding story to see Jesus. It is a story of God's faithfulness. Exodus 6, 8 says this, And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Numbers is a story of God's faithfulness because God made a promise to a guy named Abraham, said, I am made a promise to you, and I'm going to fill it. No matter what they do, I'm going to fulfill my promise. And he says, I am the Lord. And what does the writer of Hebrews tell us about God in making this promise to Abraham? Hebrews 6.13 says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God said, I made a promise. It's a story of God's, it's a story of Jesus. It's a story of God's faithfulness and God keeping his promise. It is also a warning for us about rebellion and disbelief. Numbers is a book of warning about rebellion and disbelief. Matter of fact, so much so that the writer of Hebrews points 
to this book of Numbers as the reason they did not enter God's rest. Look at what it says in Hebrews 3, 16 to 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But Numbers is also a story of the already and the not yet. We, like, we, see, we know that phrase. We are already citizens of God's kingdom, but we're not yet there. I'm already a citizen, but I'm not yet there. We live in between. That's exactly the same as Numbers is. As they begin the journey, they were told, you're going to have this land, but you're not there yet. God had delivered them from Egypt and promised to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. The book of Numbers, or in the wilderness, is the story of what happened between these two points, between coming out of slavery and getting into the promised land. It tells us what happens. It shows how God went with them, cared for them, warned them, judged them, and fulfilled His promise to them. The book of Numbers is also our story. They were sojourners in the wilderness, just as we are sojourners on earth, which is our wilderness. We also live in the already and the not yet. The promise to Abraham is the same promise to Christ's church. Scripture always goes from the lesser to the greater, from the type to the anti-type. Jesus is the greater, and Jesus is the anti-type. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to, to God for His glory. See, we live in a wilderness of an evil and perverse generation. God's promise is, that, that is the same today and forever, that He will lead and guide us through the wilderness as he, holds us, as he holds us in His hand in which no one can pluck us out of. Though we have eternal security, we also have responsibility. The children of Israel had a responsibility. God said, you're going to the promised land. It's as good as done. But you have to do something. You have to believe and you have to act. They did not believe and they did not act. We are to conduct ourselves as children who believe in what God has promised, just as the daughter of Zelephahad did. Remember what Peter tells us. I, I, I think a companion passage to the whole book of Numbers is found in 1 Peter 2, 9-12 where it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have re received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're in a journey too. We've been released from slavery. 
called out of darkness and into his wonderful light and awaiting the promised land, just as the children of Israel were. They were brought out. They're going through. They have, they've suffered. And they, they make their own way even harder. We can learn the lessons of what not to do. It's also a story of God's promise that at the end stands Jesus. Remember what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Again, Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set for us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus stands at the end of our journey. The end of the journey of the children of Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey, which we know symbolizes heaven for us. So when you read the book of Numbers, see Jesus. See God's faithfulness. At the end of the journey stands Jesus. And when that day comes for us, loved ones, we will fully know what it means to be in Christ. This is the story of Numbers. It is why it is necessary to be taught, for it is a book about our ultimate hope, the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. That's an overview of Numbers. I hope it helps you as we set out next week to begin exploring this incredible book. I'm excited about it, and I hope you will be too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that is ours. Thank you that you give us the Old Testament, for your word tells us, for whatever was written in the past was written for our encouragement so that through endurance and the scriptures we might have hope. And Lord, we have hope because you made a promise and you're a promise keeper, and you will carry us through to the end. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful along the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I don't know about you, but I truly enjoy those things because it preps you and gets you ready for what's coming in God's Word. And, you know, just uh, the blessing that's going to be, you know, the preaching from the men that God uses. So... Let's stand. We're going to open up our hymnals, uh, open up to page 575. This is what we should be doing is leaning on the everlasting arms, 575, and we're going to sing all three verses. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. 
Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.